So Philippians chapter 4, you can follow along with me in your Bibles. Therefore, my brothers, whom I know and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the first aspect of standing firm in the Lord we see here is to stand together. Immediately after this first verse where we're told to stand firm in the Lord, the first thing Paul starts talking about is a conflict within the church. He talks about this disagreement between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who were leaders in the Philippian church. And we don't know the details of the conflict. He doesn't tell us much about it, probably because it would have been familiar to the people he was writing to. They all know these women. They're probably prominent women in the community, and they have a, a well-known disagreement. But while we don't see much about it, we can learn some things from it. First, we see that uh, Paul, the author of this letter, is not super concerned with assigning blame in terms of, is it Euodia or is it Syntyche? Um, he's not super concerned with pointing out that one of them is 100% in the right and one of them is 100% in the wrong. Because as you probably realize, in most conflicts, it's not that simple. There's usually plenty of sin to go around. There's usually not just one perfectly righteous individual who's fighting the one perfectly unrighteous individual. And so he's not as concerned with saying, this is the person who's right, this is the person who's wrong. And in a lot of our conflict, that's not the main issue, right? Assigning responsibility for the blame is not the thing he's after. What he is after is assigning responsibility for the resolution. Whose job is it to seek peace? Whose job is it to agree in the Lord? And you notice he puts that responsibility on both of them. So basically he's saying, I entreat each of you to do this. I don't care who started it. I don't care who thinks they're right. I want both of you to agree in the Lord and to pursue this reconciliation. So what that means is any conflict that you are in, whether you think you're the 100% righteous party, whether you think you're the 100% guilty party, if you know a conflict exists, if you know you're not agreeing in the Lord with someone else, the responsibility is on you to pursue reconciliation with that person. Now, as the passage continues, he actually expands the circle of responsibility. In verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. And the you he's writing to here is the church in Philippi. He's saying, you, church in Philippi, you've been my true companion in the gospel. But here's what a true companion does when people in their midst are not agreeing in the Lord, when they're in conflict with one another. A true companion helps. A true companion says, this conflict affects our community, and so I want to step in and be a help to this, even if I'm not the one who's directly involved in the conflict. Now, this is very countercultural, because we would usually say that minding your own business and staying out of things is a virtue, right? We don't like it when someone starts meddling in conflicts that they aren't a part of. And there is a wrong way to do this, right? You're just kind of jumping into everyone else's business because you want to gossip about it, you want to make matters worse. But the idea here is that it's actually possible to want to help, right? And a true companion, when there's unresolved conflict, will want to help. And so how do you do that in a way that is genuinely helpful? 
Well, first, if, you, if someone's coming to you and they're talking about someone else in a kind of negative light or recounting a conflict they have with this person, don't just nod and go about your business. Just point out, hey, it sounds like there's maybe some unresolved issues here between you and this other person. Have you talked to this person about the things that you're presenting to me now? And so the main way you can help two people in conflict is helping them deal with it with one another, helping them talk to each other. Now, sometimes you may find out that that step has already been taken. They've already tried to talk it out, and they just can't seem to get anywhere. In that case, you can offer to be there as a mediator, as a kind of objective party who can help both sides see maybe some of their own blind spots and point out where there's need for repentance on each side of the conflict. And if you don't know what to do, if you're not sure how to help, remember you're part of a community, right? This is, this is a community effort. And so ask for help, right? It's the job of the whole community of the true, as a true companion to help these women. I just encourage you, if you do that, if you're part of a church community, if you're part of City Light, to try to ask up, meaning ask a city group leader, ask a pastor, ask someone who's been entrusted with a level of spiritual authority that they're not going to spread that or just make matters worse. You want to insert yourself to help, not to get in on someone else's business or to spread more information. And yet the reality is, if you're part of a community, a true companion will help others make peace, will help others agree in the Lord. While we say mind your own business is a virtue, I think we all know there's a limit to that, right? Like if in your city group, for example, someone pulled a gun on someone else, You'd be like, all right, this is my business now, okay? I'm not just going to say, hey, you know what? I don't want to, you know, you, you guys go ahead and resolve this. If they started throwing punches at each other, you'd probably feel like, maybe I should hold this person back. Maybe we should do something about this. Part of our problem is we've accepted a definition of peace that is just the absence of conflict. So as long as people aren't throwing punches, as long as people aren't pulling guns, we say, hey, I'm going to mind my own business here. But what God is after here is that these women agree in the Lord, not just that they don't kill each other, It's that they would be able to warmly greet one another with no elephant in the room, right? That they they know, hey, we're, we're friends. We're resolved here. We agree in the Lord. Now, that's a level of comfort that's much greater than the comfort of just, well, we don't talk about things, and those two people just keep them out of the same room. But in order to get to that level of comfort, you have to be willing to get uncomfortable first, You have to be willing to have the slightly uncomfortable conversation, to not just nod your head, but to say, hey, it sounds like there's maybe some unresolved issues here. That doesn't come naturally to us, right? And so it's important to see here that this agreement is only possible in the Lord. He says, agree in the Lord. Because in the Lord, we have a true peace that comes in the midst of the worst possible relational conflict you could ever have. In our relationship with God, there actually is a 100% guilty party and a 100% innocent party, and we are the 100% guilty party. God has been generous and good to give us all we need for life and godliness, and yet all of us alike have built our lives and worshiped and loved something other than him, our creator. And this creates a conflict in our relationship with him. But God, instead of standing back, instead of saying, I'll talk to them when they're ready to talk to me, Instead of just ignoring it or settling for a kind of surface level, well, we just, won't, we just won't deal with this. He enters in. He enters in and becomes a human in Jesus Christ and takes upon himself the most possible discomfort. Not only the discomfort of being rejected by people, which he did when he was on earth, but the discomfort of hanging on the cross and being rejected even for a time by his heavenly Father, experiencing a break 
in his relationship with his heavenly father so that we could be restored to a peaceful relationship with him, though we had broken that trust. That's the kind of peace that you have in the Lord if you are in Christ Jesus. And to stand firm in the Lord means you let that peace that you have with God permeate every relationship in your life. When you look at another Christian, if you are in the Lord, what do you see? Do you see someone else who's wronged you? Do you see someone else who you've wronged? Do you see someone who has a different personality, different interests, who you don't like the things that they talk about, who's different skin color, different socioeconomic background, different culture? Those things all may be true, and they're actually very important to acknowledge when they are there. But do you also see someone who is in the Lord with you? Someone who has experienced the same peace with God that you have? If so, to stand firm means you, let, you settle for nothing less than that kind of peace in your relationship with this other person. You have the hard conversation. You forgive. You confess. You talk about the things that are making your relationship difficult that are in the way of agreeing in the Lord. Do that today, right? Like, if you know that you're not in agreement in the Lord with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, don't let that go, and don't let the weird get weirder, right? Address it, talk about it, and settle for nothing less than the peace that you've been given in Christ Jesus. The next aspect of standing firm in the Lord is also in the Lord. Rejoicing is is what verse 4 directs us towards. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Always? Really? Always? Yeah, always. Even in trying circumstances, even in sadness, even in suffering. Now, you may look at me and say, you don't know what I've been through, right? (laughs) Like, you don't get it. How are you going to stand up there and tell me to just rejoice in the Lord? And here's the deal. Like, I've had hard things in my life, but if you stack up the hard things in your life, they may be worse than the stuff in mine, okay? But I'm not going to stand here today and tell you to rejoice always just because I think it's a nice idea or because I want you to think more positive. I'm doing it because it's here, right? Like, it's written here, rejoice in the Lord always. And the guy who's writing this was no stranger to suffering, Like this guy, Paul, was shipwrecked at sea multiple times, was in poverty, was single for his entire life, was separated from his family, was beaten and publicly mocked and shamed. And the very letter he's writing, he's writing from a jail cell. And he's still saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Furthermore, it's not only Paul writing this letter, but God speaking through Paul. And the God speaking in this letter is the God who hung on the cross in Jesus Christ, who was beaten, flogged, stoned, rejected, and ultimately died a shameful and painful death on the cross. Can he tell you to rejoice always? Can he tell you to rejoice in any circumstance? He does. And it's because this rejoicing is not rooted in the circumstance, but in the Lord. When you look back on your past, you may find all kinds of situations in your life that in and of themselves would not evoke rejoicing in any reasonable person. When you look at your life today, you may find all kinds of things that don't evoke rejoicing. And sometimes the hardest things are when you look into your future and you think of what could happen. And you imagine all the things that, that could happen that would make rejoicing really difficult. And you think, 
God wants me to rejoice even then? Even if those things happen? Yes, he does. Because for all the questions you don't have the answer to, for all the questions that have already been answered in a way that was not inducing of happiness and of joy, you actually have answers to some really important questions in the Lord. Like, who are you? In the Lord, you are a saint, a servant of Christ Jesus, and a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure? In the Lord, yes. Will God finish the good work that he's begun in you? In the Lord, yes. Did Jesus leave heaven to take on the form of a servant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for you? In the Lord, yes. Will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Yes. Will you be with Jesus when you die? In the Lord, yes. Will you be found in Christ Jesus at the judgment, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in him, the righteousness from God that depends on faith? In the Lord, yes. Will Jesus return to transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body? In the Lord, yes. Can any of your circumstances change those things? No. Will any circumstance in the future change those things? No. And that's just the letter of Philippians. I'm just reviewing some stuff that we've already been given here. If you open up the rest of the Bible, there is no shortage, no shortage of reasons to rejoice in the Lord. The most important things, the most important questions, those of eternal significance, are answered and find their yes and amen in the Lord. So yes, there are reasons to be sad. There are reasons to be fearful. And there are better reasons to rejoice in the Lord. So what do you do? You pretend the sadness isn't there? No. You choose to rejoice before the circumstances change. You choose to rejoice in the middle of the sadness. And we get an example of this in Paul's life and in the way that he lived. In Acts 16, when he was first in prison, in Philippi actually, it records that in the middle of the night in his jail cell, he and Silas, the friend he was in prison with, sang hymns to the Lord in their jail cell. They weren't singing to the jail cell, right? They weren't saying, isn't this jail cell awesome? You know, like, they're not pretending, okay? They're singing to the Lord. Because even when they're in the jail cell, he's still the Lord. And all these things that we've been talking about are still true of him, right? So when you're in times of sadness, when you're in times of depression, when you're in any situation and you don't feel like rejoicing, choose to rejoice. Choose to say to God the things about him that are worthy of rejoicing Choose to sing even and rejoice in the Lord. Now, does that sound fake? Does that sound inauthentic? Well, if I don't feel it, why should I do it? It's only fake if you lie about it, right? It's only fake if you come before God and you say, oh, I love you so much, but you don't admit, God, I gotta confess right now, I don't want to sing this song. I don't really believe this. I'm not really feeling this in my heart. And then what do you do? Sing it anyway. It's not fake because God really is still who he says he is. The things that you're saying to him, the things that he's done for you, are still true. And he's still worthy of glory, even in the middle of your sadness. Not only is he worthy of it, you need it. You need to say those things. You need to sing those things in your moments of sadness. Because it's, you need to embrace that those things are true even when you don't feel them. That he is Lord and your feelings are not. And that even when the two things don't match, the things he claims about himself are still true. When your conscience condemns you, 
You need to say out loud to the Lord, but God, you've given me a righteousness, not my own, from Jesus Christ, and I will be found in him and hidden in him on the day of judgment. You need to sing out loud, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. When you're suffering, when you're sad, you need to say out loud to the Lord, but God, I have a Lord and Savior from you who will come one day to transform my lowly body to be like his glorious body. You need to sing out loud, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I'm not actually going to sing that right now because it wouldn't go well. We're going to sing it in the second set, okay? So, so, so we'll give you immediate application opportunity for that. But um, yeah. If you can do that, if you can learn to rejoice in any circumstance, it will make you a more reasonable person, basically. And that's the third aspect we're going to talk about of standing firm in the Lord, standing reasonably. If you can rejoice in the highs and lows, you can become a reasonable person. And verse 5 talks about this, says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this word for reasonableness that's used here is contrasted in other places of Scripture with quarrelsome saying, you're the one in the room who can kind of take a step back and zoom out. So when Euodia and Syntyche or whoever it is are disagreeing in the Lord, you're the one who can say, hey, let's, let's zoom out a little bit here. What are we fighting over again? Why is this happening? What's the big deal? You're the one who can be the calm, gentle, collected person in the room. Now, some of you think this probably comes naturally to you. You say, well, I'm, I'm a chill person, you know, like, I, if people don't mess with me, it's no big deal. I kind of relax. I don't get easily offended. I, I, I'm easy to get along with or whatever. But are you letting that reasonableness be known to others? He's saying, I want you to use that reasonableness to be a peacemaker where conflict exists within your community. Usually, we go to one of two extremes. Either you're the fighter and you want to get in everyone's business because every issue is a justice issue. You've never had an opinion you didn't love. You're right about everything and so everyone else needs to know you're wrong. And then some of you are like, yeah, I'm definitely not that guy. I'm chill, you know, like, don't worry about me. I'll be good. You know, I'll be over here listening to Jack Johnson tunes and just relaxing, okay? Fine, but let your reasonableness be known, right? Like, can you actually make peace with that reasonableness? Or are you just trying to avoid conflict? Both cases, both extremes have this in common. They're both ultimately concerned with protecting themselves. I can protect myself by always proving I'm right. I can protect myself by never entering into the conflict. But a reasonableness that's known to everyone is different. A reasonableness that's known to everyone can say, there are some issues that we do actually have to talk about. And a reasonableness that's known to everyone can also say, but it's not every issue. And I can be reasonable and not have to fight over just what's really a personal offense. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in America in the 17th century, put it this way, describing these kinds of people. He says, These kinds of people are of a yielded spirit spirit to others, ready for the sake of peace and to gratify others, to comply in many things with their inclinations, and to yield to their judgments, wherein they are not inconsistent with truth and holiness. A truly humble person is inflexible in nothing, but in the cause of his Lord and Master, which is the cause of truth and virtue. In this he is inflexible, because God and conscience require it. But in things of lesser moment, which is about 99% of our conflict, and which do not involve his principles as a follower of Christ, and in things that only concern his own private interests, 
he or she is apt to yield to others. And if he or she sees that others are stubborn and unreasonable in their willfulness, he or she does not allow that to provoke them to be stubborn and willful in their opposition to them. So the idea is, if, it's, if the cause of Christ is at stake, okay, we've got to talk about this. But if it's just my personal offense, maybe we do need to talk about it, but I can let it go. I can be the one in the room who says this isn't that big of a deal and who can be reasonable. How do you do that? Again, no surprise, it's in the Lord, right? Now those words aren't used in verse 5, but look at the reason that's given. It says, the Lord is at hand. We've just been told that Christ Jesus will return to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And what he's saying here is that is near. Whether it's tomorrow or a thousand years, in comparison to eternity, eternal joy is right around the corner for you. And when you know that's right around the corner, it has an incredible power to order your priorities in the present. Like if you, if you ever get to take vacations, you probably realize this. When you have to go on vacation, you immediately become better at prioritizing everything else. Because you know, I can't get everything done. I've got to leave next week. I'm only going to take care of the most important things. He's saying this, this heavenly reality is right around the corner for you. So here's an exercise. Here's what you can do. When you're in a situation of conflict or you're trying to help others, pick a number. For me, for whatever reason, 30 is the number that I use. And imagine, you're 30 years in to the new heavens and new earth. You've been in the presence of Jesus, enjoying his beauty. There's been no conflict. There's been total peace. Every tear has been washed away. All sad things have come untrue. And you've just been enjoying that for 30 years. Will you still care about whatever conflict is currently causing disagreement in the Lord? Just run it through that filter, okay? There's some things you will care about. The case of Christ, the cause of Christ, you'll care about that, okay? But this person called me a name. I didn't like the tone that they used. They didn't say hi to me when I walked into the room. I didn't like the way they correct. 30 years in, you think you might be over it by then? Then just get over it now. Just let it sink in now. Stand firm in the Lord now. He is at hand. His salvation is just around the corner. Lastly, stand prayerfully. Last thing we see in this passage, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. And there we have that kind of all-inclusive language again. Rejoice always and do not be anxious about what? About anything. Anything, do not be anxious about it. Anxiety tends to live in the future, tends to think about the things that could go wrong and induces a kind of fear about them. But it's different from just having desires for the future. So it's totally reasonable to say, I would like to get this job and not this other job. I would like to be in a relationship with this person and not in the condition I'm currently in. Whatever it may be, totally reasonable to have desires. And desires can often lead you to good action, right? So you say, I'd like to have this job, therefore I'm going to go to school, right? There's something to do that can move you closer to your goal. Fear can even work that way. So if you're in the middle of the street and a car is coming at you, you're going to feel a fearful response, And what you should do in that moment is not say, well, hey, God says not to be anxious about anything, so I'm just going to stand here and pray. That car is probably going to hit you, okay? Your fear is telling you something, and your fear is motivating you towards a specific action. But anxiety is different. Anxiety makes you feel like there's a car coming at you at all times. But since there isn't a car coming at you, there's nothing to do about it. And so it kind of just becomes a background noise in your life. It's not tied to a specific action. It's a feeling of, there's something I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. I must be forgetting something. I must be neglecting something. 
And it comes from and is related to a lot of times. There's physiological reasons for that too. And there's physiological effects it can have. It can be really detrimental not just to your soul, but even to your physical health. Um, but but on a, if we can consider it in terms of our relationship to God, a lot of times it comes from a place of saying, I am the only one in control of my future. And of course, you can't actually control your future. So when that hits you, it's anxiety. It's, it's unfinished tasks, right? Oh, crap. Like, I, I still haven't figured it out. I still haven't gotten under, under control. But the reality is, almost everything you desire for your future involves elements that are uncontrollably out of your control, right? That's redundant, probably. But you get me. Unavoidably out of your control, okay? You want to succeed in your career. There's things you can do, right? Get to work a little earlier. Read up on some stuff. Develop yourself. Do what your boss tells you to do. But you can't make your boss like you. You can't make anyone give you a job. You can't make anyone promote you or give you a title. How your kids turn out, right? You can be a good parent. You can read some books. You can get some help. You can discipline. You can teach. But you're, you're a big slice of the pie. You're just not the whole pie, right? You can't control what kind of person this kid is going to become ultimately. Relationships. You can try to find out what the people you are attracted to want in a mate and just try to become that thing, but you can't make anyone want you, right? And if you try, you're just going to drive people away. Recently, the, the tragic uh, terror attacks in Manchester, England, even similar attacks in New York, have reminded us just how out of control we are. Like, how do you stop that stuff? You're just in a crowd, and someone can drive a car through it. And what anxiety will do is it'll say, never go in crowds. That's how I'll fix it. I'll just figure out, you can't live that way. It'll suck the life out of you. In fact, if you're really honest, you can't even control your next breath. You can't even control your next heartbeat. Imagine what it would do to your anxiety if you tried to, right? If you spent every moment of every day saying, now make sure you breathe again. Now make, now make sure that heart pumps out that next section of blood. At some point, you just have to realize, you, you're not God. You're not in control of all these things. Now what you can do is just ignore that, okay? And just say, well, I'll just try not to think about it. But it becomes kind of the background noise to your life. Anxiety doesn't go away that easily. Or you can try to confront it head on and just talk to yourself about it. Say, well, here's why you don't need to be afraid. And, uh, that can just make you more anxious, though. Because now you're anxious about your anxiety, too, and trying to fix it. What's offered to us here is a way to get outside of your own head and to have a conversation with the one who actually is in control. You talk to yourself about it, you're still talking to the person who can't do anything about it. But here, we're given a way to talk to God, to talk to the only one who actually is in control of all those factors that you aren't, of all those things that will ultimately determine what your future looks like. You actually can have a conversation with him. And this is exactly what it's telling us to do. If you are anxious, he's saying, let that request, let that thing that's making you anxious be made known to God. So real practical stuff here for what you can do when you're anxious. First, just write down what are the things you're anxious about. Anxiety lives in the generalities. Oh, there's just this general sense that life is out of control. But if you can boil it down, you often find the list isn't as long as you think. It might be three things, it might be four things. Write them down. And then just pray. Ask God to do these things. If I'm anxious because I don't know if I'm going to get a job, ask God to provide you with a job. Ask him to do it, right? 
And this asking is a central part of prayer. So you ask him, and then you just do the one or two things he actually has given you responsibility over. So if you want a job, fill out an application and ask him to give you favor with the person it's going to. Asking is a central part of prayer, but it's not the only part, because he says here that these, as we let our requests be made known to God, we do it with thanksgiving. One of the challenges of when you do write those things down and you're asking God to do things, it's absolutely right to do that. You should do that. But it can start to feel like your life is just a series of unmet needs. And that's not the real world. That's not the world you live in. Where all God has ever done is not met your needs, that's ridiculous. In the real world, you have a heavenly Father who has been gracious and kind to you above and beyond whatever we deserve. That's the kind of Father I have. And so when you ask him for things, discipline yourself to thank him at the same time for all the incredible things he has already given you. Even if you had no earthly benefit, the, the innumerable things that he's done to reconcile you to himself, to give you an eternal home, are, is enough to give thanks for. But then on top of that, just look around you at all the things he has given you and discipline yourself to give thanks. And the answer God promises to this in verse 7 is that he will give you his peace. A peace which surpasses all understanding to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't necessarily say he's going to give you exactly what you asked for. He's going to give you something better. He's going to give you a peace that can guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus in any situation, in any circumstance that you are going through. The ability to whatever comes at you, be able to genuinely say, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I can rejoice. I have peace in this situation, guarding my heart and my mind. And no surprises here. Where is that peace found? In the Lord. Except now the Lord is named. It says, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. This is the Lord through whom the peace of God comes. Have you ever tried just telling yourself it'll all be okay? How do you know that, though? Right? And what if you really do want something that you don't have? You can't rejoice. God hasn't given it. You can't be reasonable certainly can't agree in the Lord with someone who's withholding that thing from you or who you, you, perceive, you perceive to be blocking it. You ever tried telling yourself, it's okay, I'm not in control? Is that okay? What if no one's in control, right? The only way this actually brings peace to you is if you can know that someone is in control and that that one who is in control is for you. How do you get that kind of peace? It's only in Christ Jesus. If you are in him, you cannot deny that the one who is in control is also for you because he did not spare his own son, Christ Jesus, but gave him up for you. Have you committed sins? Christ Jesus has paid for them. Do you still fall short today? Christ Jesus did not fall short. He's the one who truly stood fast, and he stands fast today, ready to forgive you, interceding on your behalf before the Father. Whatever situation you are in, there is peace from God in Christ Jesus available for you, and he will give it to you in his timing if you will just let your requests be made known to him in Christ Jesus. He is with you in Christ Jesus. He is for you in Christ Jesus. Don't look anywhere else. Look no further. Stand firm in him, together with his people, reasonably rejoicing, and just letting your requests, letting your anxieties be made known to him. 
If you are an anxious person, you are so close to being a praying person. People who pray, one of the biggest challenges is staying focused, right? But if you're anxious, you already know how to focus really well. Because you focus on the stuff you're anxious about all the time. All you got to do, take that internal conversation, turn it outward. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.